0: Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be on a little bit different track. I know your Bible kind of flops open right automatically to uh, to Matthew, but we're going to switch things up a little bit, so we're going to be doing a couple of uh, prophecies, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' coming, which is one of which we're going to be looking at this morning. Next week will be a little bit different with uh, Christmas worship. In a couple of weeks, we have a deacon ordination, so December is going to be kind of a... uh, I don't know, a little, bit, a little bit of a casserole, I guess, just a, a, little, a little bit of a bunch of different things. So this morning, we're actually going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 as we look at Jesus the Comforter, Jesus the Comforter. I don't have either screen, so maybe let me know when you have, if, 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 there, if one of them is up, let me know and, and, and I'll, uh, I'll roll with it. All right, so Isaiah chapter 40 will be in the first eight verses this morning. Well this morning, we're going to see, as we walk through this passage, that Jesus brings comfort to God's people. Jesus brings comfort uh, to God's people. Well, it was uh, a few hundred years ago now, 1741, about 35 years before the Declaration of Independence, uh, that in England there sat a starving artist. Uh, the starving artists aren't new today. there was a starving artist, and he sat there wondering how in the world he was going to pay his bills. And he had been commissioned uh, to write a piece of music. So he pulled out his Bible, which at the time was uh, the King James Bible, and he pulled out the Book of Common Prayer, which was used in the Church of England to kind of guide their worship services, and he began to write. Now, this man's name is George Friedrich Handel. Now, we don't dress or look like this today, but he sat down he began to write a 259-page work Uh, a piece of music that we know today as the Messiah. And as he sat down to write this, really all of his hopes hung on it. Uh, He had nothing, he had great debts, and he was hoping that uh, perhaps this piece uh, could help him out. And so it was uh, a little bit later, this is 1741. In 1742, uh, this work was performed for the first time. This is a manuscript, uh, or a page from the manuscript of his kind of original writing of this. And so the first performance of this would be in Dublin, Ireland. And so he just travels a little bit outside of England, goes to Dublin, Ireland, and he goes there for the first performance of the Messiah. Now, he wasn't the the only person whose hopes rode on this. It was a benefit concert for, for people in debt. So the first time this piece was performed, it was performed basically to help people who had no money and had no hope of paying their bills. Well, since 1742, it kind of it was received, I would say, modestly. It didn't become famous right away, but at some point it caught on, and since 1749, it has been uh, performed every year since. So this piece has now become the most performed musical piece uh, in the history of the world. It's performed uh, in more settings and more venues uh, than, than any other piece in history. Well, part of the reason I start here is because he starts here. So we just read from Isaiah chapter 40 and the very first song in this piece that he wrote that became so successful in time is from Isaiah chapter 40 where God says, comfort, comfort my people. And the message that he sends is a comfort through the Messiah. So in Isaiah, God has promised judgment for his people. It's all been judgment, judgment, judgment. And then he says, but wait, there is a promise coming, a promise of comfort. And so this text has kind of made famous by the Messiah, but really it's a word from God to his people that he's going to send comfort through his son, Jesus. And so we're going to see this morning that God comforts his people in verses 1 and 2, and we see this particularly and first through God's heart. We see God's heart revealed here. The opening to this passage is, is pretty dramatic. So, like uh, a lot of sections of Scripture scripture are kind of, I don't know, here's what happens, here's what happens, here's what happens. Well, here we drop into a poem or almost a song, and the song is Comfort, Comfort My People, and we get a beautiful picture of the heart of God for His people. We see words like comfort, speak tenderly, warfare is ended, and iniquity is pardoned. Now, this passage comes 800 years, some eight centuries before Jesus will actually come, But just the hope that he's coming in eight centuries, God says, the message is so good and Jesus brings such grace to his people that just the announcement that he's coming 800 years in the future should bring you comfort. To speak tenderly is to speak truth so persuasive that it moves us to respond to the message. There's kindness in this message, but there's strength too. The point is that God's compassion is so great that it moves us to an emotional response. God's compassion moves us emotionally to be comforted in times of trouble. Well, I mentioned before this promise of judgment, and Isaiah 39 tells us about this. The days are coming when all that is in your house shall be carried into slavery in Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So God promises one moment you're all going to be judged, you're going to be carried away into slavery, and the next moment he says... Be comforted. So, what is it that tells people who have this kind of promise of terrible judgment coming? What is it that brings them comfort? It's people who, by faith, believe God's word, God's message of grace. And the text gives us three pictures to help us understand why God's people can be comforted in dark times. First, we see warfare ended, we see iniquity pardoned, and then he uses this phrase that's kind of remarkable double repayment for sins. So the first picture, he says, your warfare is ended. The word warfare can also be translated harsh service. In other words, these people are going to be committed into service under a terrible master. But with Jesus, he says, your warfare is as good as over. Then we see a second picture. Your iniquity is pardoned. the language here indicates that payment has been made. In other words, it's not like the judge looks at this and says, you owe this great debt and it's okay. What happens is the judge looks and he says, you have this debt and it is paid. Someone has pardoned, paid this for you, and therefore you can walk free. And then Isaiah gives us a third word picture. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. In other words, Israel's sin is so great that they deserve judgment, and yet they're going to receive greater grace than their sin. I mean, this is a remarkable promise, that as great as our sin is, God's grace is even greater. I mean, this morning, if you began, uh, you just took out a pen and paper, and you began writing down, like, sins that you could think of that you could remember, and you just did that for the last week. We don't do this often, just think that hard about our sin. But what if you began writing down every sin that you've ever committed and you went back as far in memory as you could go? There'd be some things on that sheet of paper that you'd want to shred it immediately upon writing it down, wouldn't there? There'd be some things that for any of us would bring shame. And you begin writing down those things and they would bring shame and guilt and condemnation. And yet the message of Isaiah is that as great as all of those things are, God's grace, the word he uses here, is is double that. It's, It's greater than our sin. Any burden, any sin, any offense that you bring to God, God's grace is infinitely greater. I mean, when your rap sheet is book length, that's why the judge should throw the book at you. And you know, we could all write a book of our sins, all the things that we've done that have fallen short of of what God expects, but this judge isn't like other judges, God is a judge who looks at our sin and he demands payment on the one hand and yet on the other hand he himself offers payment for our sin and he says our unpayable sin debt is paid in full well how is it that an infinite debt can be paid there's this there's this infinite debt that we owe God and he says it's paid double is it because people work so hard well, it's just the opposite, isn't it? Because Isaiah 40 says that our sin is pardoned. That's not by work. That's, that's a judge saying, go, you're, you're free. So how is it that this happens? And as, if you continue reading through Isaiah, you would come to Isaiah chapter 43 where you'd read, I am he, says the Lord, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sin. God demands that payment be made and then he himself blots out, pays our sin debt. What does the gospel mean for you? The gospel means that you have a debt that is too great to pay. God demands something of you that is too great for you to give and then he himself gives it. He himself pays a debt that we cannot pay and what he says is God can pay this. He can pay it double, super abundantly above the amount that we owe. God's grace repays double for our sin. I mean, who could pay an infinite debt and then pay it twice? only an infinite and infinitely powerful and generous God. God is a God of comfort, and his promise of grace brings comfort. Even before this judgment is complete, the judgment hasn't come yet. Isaiah promises judgment is coming, but it hasn't come yet, and even before it comes, God promises hope and comfort and grace through the Messiah. And so the point of this is that when God promises, you can live as if you've already received the promise, In other words, the Messiah hasn't come yet, but he says you can receive comfort. It's as good as done. When God says it, it's paid. When God promises, it's done. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that when Handel had written this this piece, this Messiah, in which he began with this passage, he wasn't the only one whose whose hopes wrote on this. He went to Dublin, Ireland, and his first uh, concert was a benefit concert for people in, in debtors' prison. Uh, back then, if you, didn't have, if, if you had debts you couldn't pay, they didn't really have bankruptcy court, you got thrown into a debtor's prison and you had to live there until you or someone that you knew could, could repay the debt. It was kind of a catch-22. You have to repay the debt. But you're in prison. It doesn't really work out that well, but this is, this is how they handle it. And so he goes there and all of his hopes ride on this piece. And when he, he wrote this, what happened was that there were 143 people in this debtor's prison and, and the money given to this concert redeemed all of them and paid off his debts too. And so he has all of these debts that he can't pay. He has 100, almost 150 people, 143 people whose, whose hopes ride on this, and they're all delivered through the performance of this piece. And so it was this peace that guaranteed his debt. Well, what is it for us this morning that guarantees the payment of our debt? It's the suffering of Jesus in our place. It's the afflictions of Christ. I mean, Jesus entered the world in a time of mourning, I mean, Herod slaughters all the babies in Jerusalem. His life ends with his mother Mary weeping at the tomb. And yet this suffering, this pain that Christ endured is a message of comfort to us. Not because we're sadistic people who look at his pain and enjoy it because his suffering guarantees our comfort. It guarantees our deliverance. It guarantees God's heart and God's grace for us. When we look to Jesus, God's grace brings comfort. Well, how is it? That, that God offers comfort to his people. And next, Isaiah tells us that God prepares the way through his son, Jesus. He talks about this voice crying in the wilderness. There's a voice crying, a prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us uh, who this voice belongs to, uh, but if you've been walking through Matthew, you already know who this voice belongs to because Matthew tells us and, and, and John tells us and Mark tells us that this voice belongs to John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist stands in the wilderness and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. So, I mean, some eight centuries before John the Baptist appears, Isaiah says, John's going to appear and this will be his message. Well, what kind of message is it that John has? Well, the picture here is pretty remarkable. It's like there's this shifting of, of the plates of the earth, the tectonic plates of the earth that we kind of think uh, bringing earthquakes maybe in San Francisco or someplace. Well, these plates shift and what happens when this, when this happens is that, that mountains are brought low, valleys are lifted up, and, and, and rough places, become, they become even, they become a plain. And so the point of this is that, that he's preparing a way for Jesus to come into the world and to where everyone can see him and see who he is. There's this picture of the Messiah coming in and conquering this grand high. wall. Well, well, this imagery is pretty, is pretty common in, uh, in the 9th uh, in the, in the century B.C. here. So the way that people would respond to it, so you come in and a king comes and he conquers your area. Well, then he wants to parade before you and, and show everyone how great he is. Well, you're now a slave to this new king, and so your job was to prepare the highway for him. Your job was to get out your, your pickaxe and your, and your shovel and, and your tools and basically pave a road for him. So when a conquering king comes in, your job is to smooth the road so that everyone can see him and, and tell him how great he is. When a conquering hero enters a city, it's because people have already made it possible for him to be there. And the Messiah comes in and John the Baptist is the one who's preaching this message and it basically prepares the way it smooths the road. And when this happens, what we see are you can kind of picture people along a highway craning their necks and trying to see the king who's going to come in on this road. And Isaiah tells us, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what is the result of the Messiah's arrival? He tells us it's that God's glory is revealed and everyone will see it. Isaiah delivers this word to one nation, to Israel. But even in this prophecy, we see that God has a grander, more glorious plan than merely delivering Israel from earthly captivity. He promises them deliverance, but it's a much grander plan. In other words, our God is a missionary God because he says all flesh will see it together. Because we serve a missionary God, God's people are missionary people. I mean, we believe in the importance of sharing the gospel with our neighbor. We're front yard missionaries whose job is to speak the gospel. But this is also a time of year to recognize that in the world today, there are billions of unreached people who have never heard the name of Jesus. This isn't people around you who don't know Jesus. These are people who have no access to the good news that Jesus Christ is here to save sinners, and apart from it, they will perish in their sin. I mean, we live in an era where today 40% of the peoples on the face of the earth are unreached with the gospel message. But God's salvation plan goes far beyond the borders of one nation. We sit here this morning because this message is true. You think about how far we sit from where this happened, from Israel. We sit here, we kind of are the ends of the earth, and we kind of are the ends of this this message. It's going to all nations. It's come to us, and it's our job to take it to others. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God is too great to be contained within the borders of one nation, we're to be kept secret to ourselves. It is a message that demands that we speak it. When God's glory appears, it appears for all people. I mean, when Jesus appears, there are shepherds in a field, and God's glory appears for them, and they're changed forever. When God's glory appears, it appears to Pagan astrologers from the east who travel to see Jesus who are led there by a star. It appears even later in John chapter 4 for a cheating woman who's on her fifth husband, but it's not her husband, by a well. God's glory appears for all peoples. Well, Why is it that God's glory appears? It appears because the mouth of the Lord, Isaiah says, has spoken. God has decreed that all will see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. God is engaged in the work of calling a people to worship him from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he calls us to join him in that work. Life is too short, the cause is too great, And the risk is too big for us to sit in our bunker safely protected from the world around us. We must engage with the world. We must see ourselves as front yard missionaries whose mission is to carry the glory of Christ and the message of Christ to work, to school, to play, to shopping. It's why we engage in sacrificial giving through an offering to share this message with those who have never heard. It's why we shouldn't just be angry complainers on social media so that the the primary message that people know about us is that we hate the world that we live in. We should engage graciously and lovingly with the world around us because we have a message of love and grace to share with them. John the Baptist came and he prepared the way and Jesus came from the wilderness and Jesus left us with this mission, go and make disciples, shine this light, the light of my glory before all nations." It's why racial reconciliation matters in a world torn by racial tensions. It's why God's people should lead the way with reconciliation with those who are divided. Let's not spend our lives throwing obstacles in the way of this message. Let's spend our lives, like John, paving the way for the glory of God to go to the nations. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of God has come. And it is this message. Look, look to Jesus and live. And brothers and sisters, this is why we exist. We exist to make much of Jesus. You may be here, you may be a teacher, you may be some sort of professor, you may be an accountant, you may, you may work in some sort of trade. You exist, that is your vacation, but that vocation exists for you, this platform for you to make much of Jesus and who he is. God's glory is displayed in his son, Jesus Christ. And so before we move on, I want to call us this morning to see that glory. God promises comfort and pardon for all who turn from their sin and receive Jesus by faith. But if you're here this morning and you've never received this, you've never truly seen the glory of God, you've never been rescued from the full consequences of God's justice for your sin, you cannot earn this payment. You cannot work and earn this payment. You can do nothing to deserve this. Isaiah 43 says, God is the one who blots out our transgressions for his own sake. If you trust Jesus, God will blot every one of your sins out and remember them no more. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? God's word brings comfort when we look to Jesus, and we can absolutely rely on God's word. God's word is sure. Verse six, a a voice cries again and says, cry. What is the message this time? And basically the message is this. You people are weak, and you will die like flowers die, quickly. But God's word stands forever. We've just seen a picture of the glory of God in verses 3, 4, and 5. Nothing can stop the advance of the good news that God's glory will be seen by all people. But humans aren't like God, are we? I mean, we age quickly. All it takes is a, is a trip to the gym as you get older, and you've got creaks and aches and bones, and they remind you you're not young like you once were. It may be hard if you're between the ages of 5 and 25 to believe this, but age comes quickly, and when it comes, it comes with a vengeance. I mean, we can try to reverse the effects of aging through exercise, diet, you know, uh, just, uh, just artfully shaped clothing that kind of hides the fact that we're becoming older, uh, makeup, hair, hair color. But no matter how much you invest, eventually your body will wither and die. In uh, 2017, in, a, in the United States, there were 17.5 million cosmetic surgeries, Those surgeries are to battle the effects of aging, the fact that we are like flowers and we will die. In three of the top five surgical procedures, uh, nose jobs, 218,000 nose jobs, 246,000 liposuctions, and 129,000 tummy tucks. So no matter how much effort you go to, ultimately age is coming for us all, and at the end of age is death you can't reverse the effects of aging. It just happens. But God's word isn't like us. God's word doesn't age and grow old. We fade and we break, but God's word never fades and never never can be broken. Verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If there's anything that you can build your life on, it is the utterly unbreakable, utterly unshakable living word of God. You can bake your life on it. Here, 800 years before Jesus comes, 800 years before anyone has a thought that there's a boy in Nazareth, a boy born in Bethlehem whose name is Jesus, 800 years before this happens, God predicts that it will happen and it happened. You can bank your life on it. You can bank your life on that message and you can bank your life on the word of God today. Today, God promises that Jesus will return. It may be eight centuries from now. You may be long dead, your body turned to dust, but it will happen. Jesus will return and fully judge all sin and rescue all God's people. It will happen. You don't need to question it. You don't need to wonder if it will happen. You don't need to despair when you don't see it happening. Well, what is it that leads us to this? What is it that leads us to question the word of God? Well, sometimes it's our own frankly, our own lack of commitment to knowing the Word, to understanding what God has said. We're, we're people of every book but this book, but sometimes it's because people who claim to be believers in the book, people who claim even to be preachers or proclaimers of the book, sometimes those people disappoint us. Sometimes people doubt God's Word because we doubt the words of people who say they believe God's Word. Someone that we love and trust has literally pulled the rug out from under our faith. When I was in college, I worked in a a warehouse, and the most common story I heard there of people who had some relationship with Christ and now wanted nothing to do with him, the the unifying theme in their lives was someone they had loved and trusted who had betrayed their trust in them personally and it undermined their faith in God himself. A, A man who saw a preacher fall into an adulterous relationship Another man who saw a pastor actually buying some illegal drugs, and it led to the undermining of their faith. For some of you, it's seeing a trusted parent, someone who taught you a song like Jesus Loves Me, and you've seen that parent turn from his marriage vows. You've seen a mom who read you Bible stories turn from her commitments, and it shatters everything you thought you knew. A beloved or trusted spiritual leader, someone who you looked up to, someone who at some level you felt like modeled what it looked like to to be a Christian, to walk with Christ, to follow Christ, and you've seen that person, they're fake. They're just deceitful. They have robbed you of kind of the, the innocent joy that you had in your faith as a Christian. But what this proves is the contrast between what God says is true about us, that we're like flowers that quickly fade and break, and the utterly unshakable nature of God. So these pictures, they can be the kind of experiences that rob us of our joy, that rob us of our relationship with Christ, or they can be the kind of things that actually move us to worship and and worship a God who is nothing like us, who isn't faithless like us, who isn't tempted or prone to fall away like us. God is an utterly faithful, utterly worthy of worship God. When the person you love and trust fails, don't let that shake your faith in the word of God. And brothers and sisters, I hope before God and by God that it's not me. But if it's me, I am God is not like me. God is not like us who are quickly prone to fail. Our trust is not in a man, not in a mere human being. It is in the God man, Jesus Christ, who is utterly, perfectly faithful at all times, even when God's people are not. God's word can never fail, even when God's people are weak and falter. It's what he says here. All flesh fails. When people disillusion you and disappoint you, God said, that's, that's what we're like. But God is not like that. God's glory and God's word will stand forever. So when you see the failures of God's people, let it move you to see beyond those failures to the glory of a God who never fails and whose word can always be trusted. When this is written, it's, you know, written looking forward to a day, eight centuries before Jesus comes. We sit 20 centuries on the other side of that message. And for 20 centuries, God's people have known this is true. God's word did come to pass. Our faith doesn't rest on our ability to make this happen. Our faith rests on the trustworthiness of God who will do what he has promised. The question for us is, are we going to be a part of what God is doing in the world? Because God will accomplish his purpose. So let's respond to God's word now asking God to give us faith in his word, not in, not in mere humans, but faith in Christ, repenting of sin and running to Jesus, and ask God to help us be a part of helping his glory seen by all peoples. So let's talk to God now. I'll give you a moment to talk to God in your seats, and then I'll close us in prayer.